Chapter 4, Part 1 of History of the Christian Church During the First Six Centuries. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Anne Boulay. History of the Christian Church During the First Six Centuries by S. Cheatham. Chapter 4, Part 1 Growth and Characteristics of the Church. 1. In spite of persecution, perhaps because of persecution, the church grew rapidly. Even before the last apostle left the earth, the light which rose in Palestine had struck the three great peninsulas of Asia Minor, Greece, and Italy. In another generation, it had reached almost the whole coast of the Mediterranean, then the great highway of nations. It followed in the track of the Jewish dispersion. Wherever there was a Hebrew colony, there was also a Christian church. Merchants brought back from their journeys the news of the pearl of great price. The messengers of peace followed in the track of the Roman armies, and liberated captives carried to their homes the tidings of the new religion which was pervading the empire. Everywhere, from the workshop to the palace, were found devoted men, working quietly yet earnestly for the furtherance of the gospel. Looking first to the eastward, we find that in Edessa, the capital of Osrone, the church first ascended a throne, we must no doubt reject as a forgery the correspondence of Abgar with the Lord Jesus, but one of its kings, Abgar bar Manu, does seem to have been converted to Christianity about A.D. 65. The Chaldean Christians look upon Maris, a disciple of St. Thaddeus, as their apostle. The existence of Christian churches in Roman Armenia as early as the 3rd century is proved by the fact that a letter was addressed to them by Dionysus of Alexandria. Pantanus, head of the catechetical school of Alexandria, is said to have been a missionary of the faith in the land of the Indians, by which we are probably to understand Arabia Felix, an Arabian chief, or perhaps a Roman procurator stationed in Arabia, is said to have desired that the great origin should be sent to him as his instructor, and about the same period we find Bostra in Arabia mentioned as a bishop's see. In Persia, the Christian faith was widely spread when Arnobius wrote, towards the end of the 3rd century. There were numerous churches in Syria and in Asia Minor from apostolic times. In Bithynia, the well-known letter of Pliny to Trajan is an impregnable testimony to the number of Christian converts about A.D. 106. The Cappadocian Caesarea had for its bishop in the middle of the 3rd century the well-known Firmilian, Cyprian's correspondent. Turning now to Africa, we find from the very dawn of ecclesiastical history a church at Alexandria, the home of the learned Apollos. St. Mark was regarded as its founder and first bishop. Dionysus, who became bishop in 246, was one of the most famous men of the age in which fell the Decian persecution. Of the first beginnings of the church in proconsular Africa, in Mauritania and Numibia, nothing is known. It may probably have received its Christianity from Italy. Certainly the North African is to us the earliest Latin church. However originated, Christianity spread so rapidly in these fervent regions that early in the third century, Tertullian speaks, perhaps a little rhetorically, of Christians forming the majority in every town. At the end of the second century, Agrippinus, bishop of Carthage, is said to have assembled a large number of African and Numidian bishops, and Cyprian, who held the same see in the middle of the third century, was able to assemble 87 bishops from the three North African provinces. 
Passing over to Europe, we find Ancheolus on the east coast of Thrace, the see of a bishop in the middle of the second century. Byzantium, not yet dreaming of becoming the seat of the greatest patriarchate of the east, seems to have received its first bishop early in the third century. Heraclea had a bishop who received the crown of martyrdom in the persecution of Diocletian. Of the churches of Macedonia, after the apostolic age, scarcely a trace is found in the records of the first three centuries. Passing onward into Achaia, we find little enduring effect of St. Paul's work in Athens, where the whole city was deeply imbued with Hellenic culture and worship, but at Corinth, where there was a less purely Hellenic population, the Christian community maintained itself from the days of the Apostle. Hegesippus, on his journey to Rome, found there a church, with Primus as bishop, who was succeeded by a more famous man, Dionysus. Of the history of the Church of Rome, in early days we have but scanty records. That it received the gospel in very early times we know from the testimony of St. Paul. The earliest Christians of whose sojourn in Rome we have any authentic account are Aquila and Priscilla, St. Paul's companions. The foundation of many other churches in Italy is ascribed by tradition, often early tradition, to immediate disciples of the apostles. Such sub-apostolic churches are found in Milan, Bologna, Lucca, Fiesole, Ravenna, and Aquileia, the latter of which claims St. Mark as its founder. The Church of Bari and Apulia boasts to have received its first bishop, Maurus, from the hands of St. Peter himself, and similar legends are found in the doubtless ancient churches in many parts of Italy. The visit of St. Paul to Spain, though probable, cannot be regarded as certain. That of St. James, the son of Zebedee, whose supposed tomb at Compostea has been an object of veneration for so many generations, may safely be set down as apocryphal. An inscription thanks the excellent Nero for having cleared the Spanish province from robbers and from the presence of those who would have subjected mankind to the new superstition. It is, however, highly improbable that any part of Spain was overrun with Christians in the days of Nero, though churches no doubt existed there in early times. At the Council of Iyabiris, Elvira, in the year 306, 19 Spanish bishops were present. In the Valerian persecution, the Spanish church had its martyrs in the persons of Bishop Fructuosus of Tarragona and the deacons Augurius and Eulogius. Gaul received its first Christianity by the well-known commercial route from Asia Minor to Marseille. The legends of the preaching of Lazarus, of Martha, or of Mary Magdalene in southern Gaul do but represent the fact that very ancient Christian communities existed there. At the Synod of Arles, A.D. 314, the bishops of Reims, Rouen, Besson, Bordeaux, and Orange were present, as well as representatives of other churches. Both Irenaeus and Tertullian speak of churches existing in their time in Germany, that is, in the Roman provinces on the Rhine. The churches of Treves, Metz, and Cologne have undoubtedly existed from very early times, and Maternus, bishop of the latter city, is said to have been summoned to Rome, A.D. 313, to aid in deciding on the Donatist controversy. In the Danubian provinces, we find early traces of the establishment of Christian churches. The oldest of these is thought to be that of Lorch, whose bishop Maximilian died a martyr's death in the year 285, in the great persecution of 303. Aphra appears as a martyr of the church in Augsburg, and Victorinus in Pateau in Styria. In the same persecution fell the bishop of Sirmium, 
in the lower Pannonia. Even the wild Goths, who troubled the borders of the empire, seem in the second century to have received some tidings of Christianity from captives of their sword. The origin of British Christianity is unknown. The tradition that St. Paul preached in Britain is supported by no early authority, and probably originated in a misinterpretation of a well-known passage in Clement of Rome, nor is much credit given to the Venerable Bede's account that a British prince, Lucius, sought and obtained preachers of the gospel from the Roman bishop Eleutherius. The gospel probably here, as in so many other cases, followed the track of the Roman soldiers and colonists. At the beginning of the third century, Tertullian boasts that the armies of Christ had penetrated parts of Britain where those of Rome had failed. In the persecution under Diocletian, the centurion Albinus, or Albinus, is said to have fallen for the faith at Verulam, giving the first British sufferer to the martyrologies. At the Synod of Arles, three British bishops, those of York, London, and Lincoln, are said to have subscribed. Thus Christianity in three centuries had penetrated the greater part of the Roman Empire, and even in some cases passed beyond its boundaries. We ought not perhaps to understand quite literally the rhetorical expression of early apologists when they tell us that the Christians, the growth of yesterday, had filled the courts, the camps, the council chambers, even the very palaces of Caesar. But it is clear that in the time of Constantine, if the Christians did not form the most numerous portion of his subjects, they were the most powerful. In the decline of national feeling, no other body of men was left, so numerous and widely spread as the Christian church, animated by one spirit and subject to one rule. 2. To come to the more particular consideration of the several churches. Nowhere was there greater religious activity than in the early Syrian home of Christianity and in the neighboring Asia Minor. The people of these regions seem to have been naturally disposed to religion, and that with a heat and a tendency to mysticism which sometimes led them astray. It was there that the Jewish converts clung most tenaciously to their ancient rites. It was there that the anticipation of a thousand years' reign of Christ on earth was most deeply rooted and adorned with the most fantastic imagery. It was there that Montanism found its earliest followers. We cannot fail to be conscious of a falling off in spiritual power when we pass from the writings of the apostolic age to those which immediately succeeded. There is a life and fire in those early works which is wanting in the latter. Moreover, the period immediately succeeding the apostles is practical rather than speculative. The Christian communities of this age show us rather renewed life than intellectual movement. It is a period of growth rather than of blossoming. The struggle against Judaism and heathendom and the work of organizing the churches absorbed a large portion of the energies of Christians. If the epistle which bears the name of Barnabas be really the work of the apostle, it belongs to Syria. For we know him in connection with Jerusalem and Antioch, rather than with his native country Cyprus. It is, however, in Alexandria, where it was placed almost on an equality with the canonical writings, that we first find the epistle distinctly mentioned, and some portions of its contents tempt us to believe that it may have been the work of an Alexandrian. Its tone is decidedly anti-Judaic. The covenant of God with Israel through Moses was annulled from the very first when the lawgiver, coming down from the mount, broke the tablets of the law. But if there is no prophet in the old law taken literally, in its spiritual, i.e. allegorical sense, 
there is much to be found which is instructive for Christians. To discover this is the true gnosis. In the law we may find Gnostically Jesus Christ, his cross, and his sacraments. The law in its true import belongs to Christians and not to Jews. This teaching is Pauline, so far as it lays down that Christians need not observe the Jewish law, but it displays none of St. Paul's yearning love for his countrymen. One of the most venerated teachers of the Syrian church was Ignatius, known also by the Greek name Theophorus, bishop of the church in Antioch. He was reputed to have been a pupil of St. John the Apostle, and doubtless prolonged into the second century the traditions of the first. This aged bishop, the emperor Trajan, on his visit to Antioch, condemned to death and sent to Rome to die. On his last journey, he wrote letters to his friend Polycarp at Smyrna, and to the churches in various cities, letters which have all the earnest simplicity, sometimes almost eloquence, which we should expect from one who was going to meet his death. In the storm which he foresees, he implores Christians to cling together in love and to obey those who had the rule over them. He is eager to warn them against the errors of the time, especially against the Judaic Gnosticism which troubled some of the Asiatic churches in the first century. For himself, he only desires to be with Christ. He would not have his friends at Rome take measures to deliver him, even if it were possible. After the departure of Ignatius, there yet remained one who was born within the apostolic age and was the depositary of many of its traditions, the venerable Polycarp, bishop of the Catholic Church in Smyrna. His nearness to the primitive teachers of the church, his prophetic gift, his constant prayers for the church dispersed throughout the world, gave him high authority throughout the churches of Asia. It was no doubt in recognition of his position, as well as of his personal qualities, that Anicetus, bishop of Rome, allowed him to consecrate the Eucharist in the Roman church in his own presence. The letter which he, as the representative of the Smyrian Presbytery, wrote to the Philippians is principally composed of practical exhortations to sobriety of life and doctrine in the midst of the trials which encompass them. It is especially valuable for its abundant citation of the scriptures of the New Testament. Contemporary with Polycarp was Papias, bishop of Hierapolis, probably the first collector of anecdotes in the Christian church. He made it the business of his life to gather from the lips of those who had known the apostles such memories as still survived of the first age, which were not embodied in written gospels. From such researches he compiled five books of the sayings of the Lord. He was respected as one of the old school, but his judgment was weak and his collection contained many puerilities. He had a strong expectation of a corporeal reign of the Lord on earth for a thousand years. Hegesippus, who wrote during the Episcopate of Eleutherus of Rome, was of Jewish origin. Of his life scarcely anything is known, except that he was at Rome in the time of Bishop Anicetus, and that he visited Corinth on his journey thither. His memoranda have commonly been regarded as a collection of materials for history, from the beginning of the church to his own time. It must, however, in this case, have been a strange arrangement which placed the death of St. James the Just in the fifth and last book. Moreover, Eusebius places him first on the list of those who had written against the Gnostic heresies. As he is not known to have written more than one work, it seems not improbable that it was in controverting heresy that he narrated some portions of the early history of the true church. In spite of his origin, he can scarcely have been a partisan of Judaic Christianity. 
His commendation of the certainly not anti-Pauline epistle of Clement seems to show to the contrary, and his condemnation of a passage nearly identical with one found in St. Paul, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 9, was probably directed not against the apostle, but against the Gnostics, whom we know that he opposed. Clement, in fact, whom Hegesippus approves, quotes the very same passage for the same purpose as the apostle. Moreover, Eusebius, who had his whole work before him, speaks of him as having preserved the unerring tradition of the apostolic preaching, an expression which he could not have used if he had been decidedly hostile to St. Paul. An offshoot of the church of Asia Minor established itself in Gaul. There, the Greeks who composed it learned the speech of their Celtic neighbors and taught them the faith of Christ. The first head of the Christian community was Pothinus, and when he fell in hoary age by a barbarous death, another Asiatic took his place. This was Irenaeus, an earnest Christian, a pupil of the venerable Polycarp. He delighted to tell how through his master he had been brought close to the traditions of the time when apostles and others who had seen the Lord yet moved on earth. How he could point out the very seat where the old man had sate and talked of the days of his youth. He became a kind of patriarch of the churches throughout Gaul. He too is said to have suffered martyrdom under Septimius Severus. Such a man was naturally grieved and angered at any departure from the simplicity of the faith. The startling progress of Gnosticism moved him to write his Confutation and Oversetting of Knowledge, falsely so called, a work partly founded on the now lost Syntagma of Justin Martyr. Of this work, which is of the highest value for the history of the early heresies, only fragments remain in the original Greek. But the whole is preserved in an archaic and evidently very literal Latin translation. It was perhaps because his other works contained opinions, such as Chiliasm, which ceased to prevail, or even were condemned in the church, that they were in after time little quoted and allowed to perish. In his attachment to the faith of his youth and his earnestness to save the church of Christ from being divided and ruined by unheard of novelties of hasty wits, Irenaeus is certainly one of the most interesting figures of his time. Among Asiatic writers may also be mentioned Julius Africanus. He appears to have passed his early life in Asia Minor. Afterwards, we find him living in Nicopolis, Emmaus, in Palestine, and thence corresponding with Origen. His Chronographia, an attempt to synchronize the events of sacred and profane history, on which Eusebius based his Chronicon, is unfortunately lost. His letter to Origen, on the authorship of the history of Susanna, shows considerable power of criticism. Here may also be noticed Dorotheus of Antioch and his contemporary Lucian the Martyr in whom we find the first beginning of that sound school of scriptural interpretation which distinguished Antioch in the following centuries. Of the first of these, Eusebius tells us that he was a man of liberal mind and of Greek culture, also able to read the scriptures of the Old Testament in the original Hebrew. Of the second, that he was not only a man of pure and active life, but also well disciplined in sacred learning. In Armenia, Christian communities are said to have existed in the time of Tertullian, but it is to Gregory the Illuminator that Christianity owes its victory over persecution and its recognition as a national church. He became the first metropolitan, or Catholicus, of Armenia, and so strongly did his character impress the people that for some generations the Catholicus was chosen from his family. 
End of chapter 4, part 1